Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of our Lord. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're starting your stopwatches now, don't. This part doesn't count. <clears throat> it's only by God's providence that I'd be teaching this passage today. If you were here back in May, I preached on Luke 6, 12 through 19. And I spoke of the power of Jesus, our restorer. You probably don't remember that sermon unless you hold on to every single word. But what I preached on was how the power of Jesus while he was on earth was his bringing forth ushering in, inaugurating the kingdom of God. And if you go back to Luke verse 19, there is a word, the word power. I hoped you circled it, highlighted, underlined, whatever you do. Because the word power there is how Jesus brings that kingdom. Through his power. And his power is the preaching of the gospel. And that is confirmed by his miracles. And specifically of that power, I spoke of the eschatological power of Jesus. And this is where I'm going to insert it. If you're from the University of Tennessee, you might not know that word. But I discussed what is eschatology? Eschatology is most commonly known as the study of the end times. What will happen when Jesus comes back? And it's discussed and only discussed when speaking of the book of Revelation. But I tried to expand our understanding, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, that we need to view eschatology how Scripture reveals eschatology. We looked at Jesus' ministry, that after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, that he was preaching the gospel, working miracles, Raising people from the dead. This was his bringing forth the kingdom of God. And when he brings forth the kingdom of God, he is reclaiming what is his. He's not only saving us from sin, but he's restoring what sin and death have caused. He is reclaiming his creation. He is bringing eschatological life. Eschatological life is when we have been made alive by his spirit 
what life was supposed to look like before sin came in, and what life will look like in glory when Jesus comes back. Because in the end, there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more disease. There will be no more need for healings. In Luke 6, we saw that the eschatological power of Jesus is his preaching of the word, the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit, redeeming his creation. When those who were dead in their sins received life, they received eschatological life. They were made alive. And I put this in your your scripture sheets, and I'm not going to read over them, but read these later. Romans 6, verse 4. Romans 8, verse 23, where Paul speaks about the first fruits of the Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, read those later with this in mind of eschatological life. You hear words, you read things that we speak about at the end, but it speaks about our reality now in Jesus. If you have been redeemed by Christ, you participate in the eschatological life now. We don't have to wait for it in the future. It has begun now, but it will come in completion when Jesus returns. We participate in the already, God's redemption, and the not yet, God's complete redemption of his creation. This is what we saw in Luke 6. But now we see an even more robust picture here in Luke 9. Because in Luke 6, it was just Jesus preaching and healing. But in Luke 9, we see Jesus give this same power to his disciples, and they preach and heal. They become agents in redeeming God's creation. They begin bringing forth eschatological life to those who hear them. But before we begin, let us pray. Father, as we come into your presence, shape us, mold us, create in us a desire to hear you speak through the reading and the preaching of your word. Enable us the strength to rely upon your power and not our own. Enable us to hear the power of the gospel, which we are able to take into the world, into our families, into our workplaces, broken by sin, and may we lay claim to your kingdom. May we graciously take the forgiveness that we have received in new life and give it to those who need new life. Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner and for Laura Berryman. Heal them by your Spirit. Continue to put people in their lives to give them comfort, enjoying the redemption that they have now in Christ. Lord, we pray for Terry and Larry Shelley. Be with Larry's doctors. Give Larry comfort. Give Terry strength and courage and hope that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we lift up everyone affected by Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Harvey. 
Lord, you know their needs well beyond what we know. And oftentimes we don't know how to pray for them in chaos and in destruction. But we lift those who have, been, who have fled their homes, who have left their jobs, who have been separated from their families. Lord, put them back where you have called them. Lord, rise up people to bring forth redemption and putting things back the way they were supposed to be. Father, we pray for John as he preaches today in Starkville. May he preach the power of the gospel in love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Growing up, I worked for two summers for my dad. He was a carpenter. He framed houses. Those two summers were the hottest summers ever recorded in Arkansas. We would wake up early, and we'd try to get as much done as we could before it got really hot. Mostly my job consisted of moving boards from one side to the other. And the next day, I'd move those same boards back to the other place. It wasn't until years later I realized he probably really didn't need my help. But at the end of the two years, after I'd become a pro at moving boards, my father finally allowed me to start doing his work. He began letting me use the miter saw and the nail gun. Because until that point, no matter how much I read about or watched him or others use those tools, I was not a carpenter. Until I felt the smoothness of the wood and the power of the nail gun and heard the pop of the air compressor as the nail drove through it. Until I heard or felt the vibrations of the wood of the miter saw cutting through it, I had just been pretending to be a carpenter. It was based on my own limitations that I couldn't do the same work that my dad did. But he had to show me. And not only did he have to show me, he had to teach me how to use his tools. In Luke 9, 1 through 9, what we must see is our own limitations. Unless Jesus gives us his power, we cannot do his work. Left to our own abilities, we, can, we are unable to do the work of Jesus. We need his power. But there's good news. He has given us his power. And since we have his power, we are able to do his work. This passage does not inherently show us the sinfulness of the apostles. It does not inherently show us our sinfulness. The apostles are given an order. They're given a mission by Jesus. They go out and they complete that mission. But what this passage reveals is about the apostles and about ourselves is that without the power of Jesus, they would be unable to fulfill the mission. They would be unable to bring forth the kingdom of God. If we do not completely rely upon the power of Jesus, we will fail our mission as his church. But this passage teaches us that Jesus has given us his power. And with that, we must completely rely upon him. We must proclaim the kingdom. And we must proclaim the kingdom even to those who will reject it. Preparation. If you're going on a trip, how do you prepare for your trip? 
There might be some of you, I know of at least one of you, that make a list. You make a list just so you can check things off the list. It doesn't matter if it's because you pack it or you complete it or whatever you have to do. You make a list just so you complete it. And the checklist isn't necessarily something that's bad. You know what to expect on your trip. You make a list, you check it, you recheck it. Maybe you've written down the directions of where you're going or downloaded it to your phone. Maybe you've packed your swimsuit, your snow skis, a really good book. Maybe you've downloaded every video your iPad can possibly hold before your trip, but you're making preparations and going on a trip. Now, this checklist that you have, this is the exact opposite of what we see Jesus give his disciples. Look at verse 3. He says, Take nothing on your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Jesus is telling them to go with urgency, without preparations for their basic needs. As one scholar says, that they were to avoid even the appearance of being engaged on other business, when their whole being should be absorbed in the service of the Lord. Now I'm going to take a quick side road before we go any further. We have to, have to answer a textual question here. Some of you might know that this historical narrative of Jesus is recorded in Luke 9. It's also recorded in Matthew 10 and Luke and Mark 6. And here in Luke 9, it says, take no staff. But in Mark 6, it says, take nothing except the staff. How are we supposed to understand this text? Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because sometimes in your life, Sometime in your life, you will run into someone who says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. Because if you read this with 21st century eyes, you read this with a critical pen, with the scientific method of either Jesus is saying in one place, two plus two equals four, and one place, two plus two equals five. And he is either lying in one, or we have to disregard both of them. This is what it's called to read scripture with um, a with the glasses of suspicion. We live in the information age. We want our yes to be yes and our no be no. How do we get these two scriptures together? But what we have to understand is that these gospels are written by different authors in different contexts to different people with different intentions. We must read the gospels as a narrative story, understanding what the authors were writing to do so, we have to read the entire text. We must ask, what is the intent of the story? Because the intent of this story is not verse 3. The intent of this story is verse 1, 2, and 6. Because what Jesus is telling his disciples is to go completely rely upon God for everything. Go as quickly as you can. Don't be bogged down by the little things. Don't let them distract you. Don't make your checklist get in the way of proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is your mission. The apostles were on a mission. And that mission was not to point to themselves. Because what lots of preachers in the first century did was they took things so people would recognize them. 
They took things to, to collect money. They took things to make them stand out in the crowd. And what Jesus is saying is don't go on your authority. Go on my authority and point people back to me. Because everything in Scripture points to Jesus. It points its readers, its hearers, its listeners to Jesus. This means for us that because Jesus has given us power, we must completely rely upon him. What is your checklist? What is in your life that is so important that you must do before you complete the mission? What part of your daily checklist distracts you from completely relying on the power of Jesus? Is it the future of your children? Is it financial security? Is it fear of what others might think? Is it busyness? Or is it a moral issue? Is it your internet browsing history? Is it your Netflix account? Is it deleted photos from your phone or or photos that people don't know of? Is it a second Instagram account that no one knows about? Is it the conversations you have about other people when they leave? Because all of these things are distraction from our mission to preach the kingdom of God. The intent of this story about the disciples is that when the power of Jesus, the eschatological power of Jesus comes upon them and comes upon us, it means that to fulfill our mission, we will rely upon Christ alone. When we respond to the gospel, he is reclaiming our life for his kingdom, and we become part of his mission. Jesus has given us his power. Just as the apostles had to rely upon him, we must too rely upon him every second of every day. And if you don't, you will miss out on the fullness of Christ's redemption. You will miss out on the fullness of eschatological life. And you will fail the mission. Because Jesus has given us his power, we must completely rely upon him. And we must proclaim the kingdom. Five guys. I don't know about you, but I believe it's one of the best burgers you can buy regularly. You might know of a hole-in-the-wall place. You might be able to make a great burger yourselves. But five guys will consistently give you a great burger. They have one goal, to make handmade burgers and fries. And they do it very well. Some restaurants you go to, they literally do everything. You have seafood, barbecue, pizza, steak. They don't do anything great. They sometimes don't do anything good. And this overzealousness isn't necessarily a bad thing, but Five Guys has one vision, one mission, one goal. Handcrafted burgers and fries. They know who they are. And that's what they do. They don't try to be anyone else. And they do it well. In this text, the 12 are given one vision, one purpose, one goal. To proclaim 
the kingdom of God. Read with me verses uh, 9, 1, verses 1 to 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Underline, highlight, circle, power and authority. Verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And now jump to verse 6. And they departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. If you remember in Luke 4, 43, Jesus tells us his mission. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Highlight, underline, preach the good news. This was his mission. We see that the apostles are given the same mission as Jesus. Proclaim the kingdom of God. That is preaching the gospel. We see later that the apostles are given the same mission as Jesus to proclaim the kingdom in Luke 24. And after that, in Acts 1, we receive the same mission that the disciples are given. Turn to your Bibles or look at your scripture sheets at Acts 1.8. You will receive power. Circle, highlight, underline that word. When the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Does that sound like the same mission? Now, turn your Bibles to Matthew 28, or look at your scripture sheets, 18 through 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, circle, highlight, underline that word. Does that sound familiar? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has transferred to us the power that is his. Jesus tells us his mission, Luke 4. He gives the disciples that mission, Luke 9. Their mission is his mission. At the end of every gospel, And at the beginning of Acts, their mission becomes our mission. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to fulfill and to complete that mission. To proclaim the gospel. That is why everything we do at Christ Presbyterian Church is centered on the reading and the preaching of the gospel. Our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, summarized in the Shorter Catechism, reads this way. How is the word made effectual for salvation? How does the word actually cause salvation? Its answer, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, bringing sinners to eschatological life and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Christ Presbyterian Church, this is why it's so important for you to be at church. Honestly, we don't come because we get to see friends. We don't come to be a social clique. We don't come because that's what people do on Sundays. And honestly, we don't want you to come just to give money. We want you to come to church 
to hear the gospel because that is how the power of God changes you. If you miss the preaching of the gospel, you should... If you miss the gospel, you should long to hear of the power of salvation that Christ has for you. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. The message itself has power. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive redemption. The gospel is not a message about power. It is not a story concerning power. The narrations of the historical events of Jesus Christ told the God-man that message in it has power. To do something else that nothing can do, only the gospel can raise the spiritually dead. Only the gospel can do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. If you miss church, we don't tell you we miss you and want a long answer. Now, if there's something going wrong, we want to hear about it so we can pray for you. But if you miss church, you are missing out on the benefits of God's redemptive purposes for you. You are missing the ordinary way that God has given his church a way to receive life and hope in a dark world. You are missing out on the people that God has placed in this church to encourage you to continue not to point to themselves, but to point to the cross of Christ. You are here in this church because of three things. You need God more than anything else. You need all of us around you, reminding you each week why you need God and why you need us. And third, which we don't often talk about in the church, is that we actually need you. That you bring something to Christ's Presbyterian Church that no one else on this planet can offer us. To preach the word is to preach the life of the Spirit and how God changes our lives. And after our hearts are changed, after the um, gospel is preached, reminding us that our only hope in this life is that we are not our own, but belong both body and spirit, life and in death, to our only Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we are able to turn to others in love. After our hearts are changed by the gospel, we are able to take that love of Christ and love those around us. Only after God has changed us are we able to forgive someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness. Only after the power of Jesus has changed us are we able to seek out those who have hurt us, those who have gossiped, who have shamed us, and turn to them and tell them, you are forgiven because I am forgiven in Christ alone. Only with the power of Jesus can we go into our schools Go into our small groups. Go into our vocations where God has called us and proclaim the redemptive purposes of God. Jesus told us in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another.
I'm going to take a quick sidebar again and talk about these healings that we see um, throughout the Gospels. It's the church's mission to preach the kingdom of God. But as we look at the Gospels, where we see Jesus, he's preaching and healing. Here in Luke 9, we see again his disciples preach and to heal. And we see the same coupling later in Acts. God's disciples go and preach and they heal. Now, we might not see miracles like this today. If you speak to many missionaries, you will say you will hear them say, when the gospel is going into places it has never been, there are miraculous signs happening. But why don't we see these types of miracles? And I want to ask you or tell you that we have seen these types of miracles. No, we haven't seen someone raised from the dead. But we've seen someone whom we never thought would believe in the gospel, and God changed their lives, and that is a miracle. We share one another's burdens. That is a miracle of Jesus. We go to one another's families' funerals. We bring someone a meal when they're going through a tough time. That is redemptive work of God, working through his people. We pray for one another as we or our family go to doctor visits or hospitals. We know a huge miracle. We pray for each other's children that someday they may come to know Jesus as their Savior. These types of miracles are just as miraculous because God is taking that which is dead and making it alive. By doing these things, we are showing forth the kingdom of God through the love of Christ. By his power. We love because he first loved us. That is the power of the gospel. That we can come week after week with our differences and stand shoulder to shoulder and worship the risen Christ with one voice as one body connected to one another with Christ as our head. Jesus has given us his power. We must proclaim the kingdom of God. We also must proclaim it to those who reject it. In the story, we see Jesus give his disciples a command in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is a type of judgment. So what Jews would do is they would walk through a Gentile country, and after they got to the end of that country, they would shake off the dust of their feet because they were afraid that they got Gentile dust on them, and it was a judgment upon them that they didn't believe in the God of all creation. But here, we see Jesus' disciples do the same thing to the Jews. And we see the same type of response from Herod. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said of some, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. The point of this passage is that when Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom, he knows it will cause division. Those sent are told to bring peace on those who accept their message, but also to leave judgment on those that reject it. In both cases, the kingdom of God has come near, whether through blessing or through cursing. This text makes us make a choice. We either believe in the message of Jesus or we reject it. And we've seen this all throughout Luke. When Jesus calmed the storm, what did his disciples say? Who is this? Herod is asking the same question. And in a few verses, Peter makes his confession. You are the Christ. The gospel asks you the question, who is Jesus? And he pushes and it pushes you to make a choice. He is either the Christ or he is a liar. And either we reject him or those who hear our message will reject him. There is no middle ground. Who is Jesus. The eschatological power of Jesus is the gospel. That we cannot save ourselves. That we cannot do anything to make ourselves right before God. It is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Once we have received his power, we must completely rely upon it. We must proclaim it, and we must proclaim it even to those who reject it. It's the same power of the gospel that resides in us and allows us to come to the table. Because it's not upon our power that we come to the table. But it's by the power of the graciousness of Jesus Christ. At the table, we receive God's grace through life-giving bread. We partake actively, responding to the gospel. These elements will not save you any more so than hearing the gospel and not believing will save you. We feast upon Christ by faith. We receive the power of Christ by his spirit to respond, believing in Christ alone on salvation, resting upon Christ alone for our salvation. And we are saved by the benefits of Christ, applied to us by his Spirit. We partake of this meal as an act of obedience and faith. We receive all the benefits of Christ crucified. We celebrate the risen Savior. No one may partake of this supper unless you believe by faith and are a baptized member in good standing with a church 
that proclaims the gospel. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is the table of our Lord Jesus. If you have not professed faith in Christ, please do not take these elements. These are not for you. But don't sit passively. Ask that Jesus will reveal himself in the power of his spirit. Speak to us. We are here to point you to Jesus. If you do believe in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have heard the gospel, the spirit has changed your heart, you are partakers of eschatological life. This table is for you. We feed upon Christ by faith until he returns. And when he returns, we will feast at a wedding banquet. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this drink, profess the Lord's death until he returns. If you'll turn to your bulletin, the prayer of preparation, often we read as a prayer of confession. Let us read this as a prayer of hope as we come to Christ's table.